Welcome to The Power of Data, the podcast by Dun & Bradstreet. Data is everywhere, and there is more created every second of every day. Join us to hear from leaders unlocking the value of data. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Power of Data podcast. I am delighted today to be joined by Will Hudson, who is Vice President of Dell Customer Experience and Data Transformation. And I am Anthony Scrifignano. I am SVP Chief Data Scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. So we will certainly have a data conversation today. Hello, Will. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Anthony. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you. I've worked with Dell for decades, literally. One of the first customers I interacted with in my role here, and we're big fans. Your career journey is really impressive. Can you tell me a little bit about your background, how you got involved with Dell in particular, your role, and where you are today? Absolutely happy to. I'll go through it as fast as I can. Although, a little known trivia fact for you and maybe your listeners, my very first job out of college was working for Dun & Bradstreet, which was really cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was uh, I was on the phone with customers helping to solve problems and information in their, in their credit reports. And so that was a really fascinating job. And actually, that gave me a lot of foundational insight into how companies work, particularly small businesses and how P&Ls flow and balance sheets work. So Big kudos to uh, Dun & Bradstreet for setting a great foundation for the rest of my career as my first job. I left Dun & Bradstreet and came to Dell to pursue a passion of mine, which was in technology. And I wound up doing that as a tech support agent. So I started taking tech support phone calls at Dell, supporting people's laptops, which was a lot of fun and sort of stressful, but a lot of fun. And I really loved working with customers. So I did a lot of different jobs inside of tech support. I was an L2, which was the next level technical kind of person. I did management. I did training. I did PMOs, project management offices. At some point in there, I realized that actually the really cool thing about computers is the software that we run on them, because that's what actually enables people to do things to change the world. And so I started hiring software developers to solve my problems. And that was really successful. And I became one of the more successful leaders uh, in the organization that I was in. And then eventually IT came knocking and said, hey, you have a really successful development organization. We want your team but we want you to come with it. And I said, fantastic. Like, you know, I've been doing this as a business software engineering organization. Now I have a chance to do it professionally in IT. And so I left at the opportunity to go into IT and do that software development piece in IT. And I did, and it was a lot of fun. And I did a lot of stuff in IT related to our services organization, which was cool. And then eventually I kind of got a little bit bored with that. And I got this offer to come out and do some marketing stuff, offer development which is something totally different, which is one of the greatest things about working at Dell is like you get the opportunities to do the coolest things around here that you wouldn't get if you just threw your resume out on the street. So I did something totally different. And I went and said like, yeah, let's do offer development and marketing. And so I did that for a while. That was a fun job. Got me into process engineering, a little bit of marketing, understanding how things worked. And then eventually working my way up the ranks in that kind of organization, I got the opportunity to say, hey, Digital transformation is becoming incredibly important to Dell and to our services division. We want you to lead the digital transformation effort for services because of your background and all of this work that you've done on the technical side. And I said, oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. So I got this fantastic opportunity to lead digital transformation for our services division, which was a fascinating job. And we did a lot of really awesome things got kind of to the top of that ladder and our CMO, Allison Dew, came knocking and said like, hey, you did a really good job doing digital transformation for services. Would you like to come over and do it for marketing? And I said, yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, you know, I have some marketing in my past, but the way the market is going, the way things are changing, 
the role of marketing is becoming more and more important. And in particular, the way marketing collects and consumes data sets the tone of the relationship for how customers work with companies. And in the future, I predict that that's going to become ever more important. And in fact, it has. And so that's what led me into marketing was following the breadcrumb of, well, the way you're using data and how you communicate with customers based on what you know about them actually becomes the relationship that companies form with the customer. And then along that journey, I have had stuff added to my plate that's related to that mission statement. So I got customer primary data added to my plate. And that is very aligned to that mission statement. And then I had data strategy added to my plate, which also is a sort of aligned to that as well. How do we have and store data? How do we use it across the board? How do we make it more efficient, especially given some of the challenges that I'm sure we're going to talk about in this podcast? So that's that's a thumbnail sketch. Sorry if I took a little bit longer, but there are some really interesting threads, at least for me. Of course, it's my career, so I think it's interesting, but I thought the, some really fun stuff. No, it's, it's fascinating. And I hope that some of the folks listening to this are earlier in their career, because that's a great story about say yes, take the challenge, go for the brass ring, get comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable. You're in an organization that embraces that. It's part of the philosophy of Dell to do that sort of thing. As you were going through that journey in your life, the things that we call data and the things that we call computers and the things that we call software were changing also. So I'm listening to you tell that story and your role went from being very discreet, very well-defined rows and columns, ontologies to very kind of squishy, you know, what we would now call intent and signals and that kind of thing. But we didn't use that language at that time. And then you went back to the digital transformation of, you know, sort of making all of that computable, if you will, and making, helping computers make those decisions. And then we get to the end and you sort of snuck in there a lot of really complex issues like who owns the data and how the regulations are changing and what we're allowed to know. We all think we want customization. And in many parts of the world, we want things to be secure and private. Well, those are kind of opposite things to want. So you have to deal with these dichotomies of I want this and that, and I want it all. And of course, you can't have it all. So you have to be somewhere in there. And I'm looking at you, even though I think people will be experiencing this as an audio I'll speak for myself. You know, my hairline is not what it was 20 years ago. You've, you've been at Mine either. <laughs> Mine's going backwards no, no, too. You've got a lot more hair. Than, uh, but my point being that we've been at this for a while, right? And, you know, we also, as practitioners, become a little bit more comfortable with these less discreet things that we then have to make more discreet and more computable and more organized. It's part of that nature, that in and out, yin yang that you talked about. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, a, it's on a cycle too. It's actually interesting that you say that. It's like the point of sort of transformation and creativity in the technology industry has changed. When I was eight building my first computer, the innovation was all around the hardware, right? Yeah. Like when the Apple II Plus was coming out and Steve Jobs was changing and Wozniak were changing like the transformation of humanity with computers. It was all about who had the best hardware and that was true largely for me through college. And then all of a sudden it became about software. It's like, well, it's really not just the computers, is it? It's what the computers can do. Yeah. And software is kind of what tells computers to do. And so the point of creativity shifted largely to software engineering throughout my mid-career. But now what we see is like, well, but actually it's only as good as what data you have access to. That's the interesting creativity, explosion of creativity and innovation that we see today is like, well, 
What kind of data can I have access to? What kind of inferences can I draw from the data? What kind of things are in the data that I don't know about today, but that I can discover using really clever mathematics and algorithms? And how can I then leverage those algorithms to then apply that to a customer journey to make our customers' lives easier or to make a product line happen more efficiently or whatever your challenge is? For me, it's all about customers. But it's really been fascinating to follow the thread of where is the innovation, where is the creativity? And it is absolutely data right now. And I'll add one more comment to that list of questions. It used to be, we need to go get the data. Now it's, we're swimming in data, right? We're we're looking yeah, for needles right. and stacks of needles, right? So it's you'll find almost anything you want in that data if you look hard enough. That doesn't mean it's right. And the world in many places is changing faster than the data that describes the world. So we have to be so, so careful that we don't just you know congratulate ourselves because the math said so, right? If there's any computer nerds out there listening, there's something called the Turing test. At what point can a, a machine be indistinguishable from a human, you know, you can't ask it a question that will let you know that you're talking to a machine. Someone recently pointed out that now we as humans have to respond to machines to convince them that we are not a machine. So somehow that dynamic got turned around on us. Flipped. Yeah, that's right. When did that happen? I think that the world is just changing under our feet. The data is now presumed to be there. Thanks to your industry, the compute power is there when we need it, where we need it. But now we have to ask better questions. And it's really all about that human element of, are you asking a good question? Are you at the right thing? Do you understand the bias? Do you understand how change impacts, how the future doesn't look like the past? So you don't machine learn your way into everything. Those are very big, squishy questions. They really are. They really are. And there's so much role for human intuition here. I think one of the things that maybe gets lost is when we start talking about automating everything and about how do we apply algorithms to make ourselves more intelligent and and more efficient. Those things are important, but really the human tasks that those actions are destroying are the rote tasks that we didn't really want to be doing anyway. Actually, what we're doing is we're creating more opportunity for creativity and innovation. And I think uh, hopefully there are some early career people listening because I think it creates an awesome opportunity for kids and for early career professionals who want to get more engaged in the math of asking the right question because you're right. Exactly. It's about where do we want to go as humanity? What do we want to do? And for me, being involved in Dell is like fantastic because we are creating the infrastructure and the solutions that make that possible. Without the products that we supply, you wouldn't be able to have the storage to have that much data. You wouldn't be able to have the compute to do all that math. So it's really fun. It's a great place to be. Let me ask you a little bit about that. So I think many people in their mental model of Dell might think of it primarily as a company that I'm sure you're cringing when I say this, that makes a certain type of hardware that makes a certain kind of thing, right? And of course, Dell is evolving and changing, just like every other company that we think we know what they do is probably evolving and changing. So you're moving more towards, you talk a lot about solutions. Yeah. And in order to have a solution, we have to have a well-understood problem to go solve, right? And we just said that those problems or challenges are changing as well. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what Dell is doing in the data space in that context of transforming itself into a solutions focus? Yeah, absolutely. A bunch of different things. I'm in Dell's IT department. And as you might imagine, in Dell's IT department, we use a lot of Dell products. So it's really fascinating, actually. When I joined, it was largely a PC company. And I've been through the transformation. You know, When I joined, it was a largely PC company. We're trying to break into servers. And then with the acquisition of EMC, we got into storage. We renamed the company, actually. It's, it's known as Dell Technologies. And the reason for that is because we have every infrastructure solution you need kind of on the cart, if you will, in the product catalog. 
And so that really helps us optimize. We're just coming out of another centralization cycle, you know, like the PC industry, the computer industry has been through all of these cycles of centralization and decentralization from mainframes through cloud. Well, we're coming out of one. What you're actually seeing now is this explosion at the edge. You've heard Michael talk about it or Jeff or I'm sure a lot of people, but the truth is, and the thing that we're as data professionals, what we're all trying to cope with is just the quantity and the speed of the data at the edge. You've got all these technologies coming together. You have massive compute that is able to be distributed into tiny little packages everywhere. You have 5G connections exploding across the world. And what that enables is more data, faster data everywhere. How do you react to it? What do you do with it? I think that we all know that our clouds are here to stay and that the future of the world is a hybrid cloud model. But what the edge clearly shows us is you are definitely not backhauling all of that data to the cloud. That's just not going to work. It's not scalable. And so the question that faces all of us data geeks is, how do I deal with the data at the edge? I can still use my core to compute the algorithms that are needed to be, quote, intelligent, but there's no way I can backhaul all that edge data to the core to make all those decisions in real time at the core and then distribute it back out to the edge, actually. So what I really have to do is use the core now as my central processing an algorithm finder, if you will. It's my experimentation node. And that is what I use to do all of the complex analytics then to distribute out to the edge all of the actual intelligence that works at the edge. So you see that like with Tesla, with automated cars, right? Like, you know, you're not backhauling that data through the cloud in order to make a decision every time a car hits a red light. That decision is being made in the car on the edge. And so it's the same thing with us with PCs, PCs and servers and storage arrays. In fact, actually the storage arrays, that becomes very complicated, making sure that those things work all the time. And so developing the really complex algorithm based on telemetry and what we know to be kind of the usage patterns in the past is great. We do all that kind of stuff in our data centers, but then the algorithms that make those storage arrays smart, that keep them resilient and reliable and operating 24 by seven emission critical use cases, that's on the actual device. But being able to handle that movement of data is huge. It's hugely important. I'm going to unpack what you just said. There's a few things there that I'd love to drill down on a little bit. You're using this term edge, and I just want to make sure that we're using it the same way. And everyone that's listening, hears how we're using it. So you're making a distinction that we used to think of all things being processed in one central place. And that would be the place where you went to get the data and to get the answer. And then PCs and, and lots of distributed technology came along and we started to do things in a more federated way. But for really big things, the concept was there's always this, this middle. And even the Internet of Things you know, has largely been an Internet of Things connected to the Internet. They go back to some central place and all of those signals get processed. But now we have autonomous devices. We have devices that may or may not have a persistent connection to anything. We have devices that collect so much data that is only germane to that environment where it's collected that it wouldn't even make any sense to try to bring it back to one place or it's changing faster than you could move it or you're not allowed to move it or it makes no sense to move it because the context isn't there. So this concept of the edge is changing as we build new devices, what becomes possible, thanks to you and others, what becomes possible to do away from wherever you think of the middle gets more and more performant. But at the same time, it's kind of a, a gate that swings both ways. You talked about the car not needing to know about the red light. There was a, an incident not too long ago where 
some kids thought it would be funny to mess with the autonomous self-driving cars by popping out of the, you know, in the middle of the street and holding up a fake stop sign and taunting the self-driving cars, right? And so it's all funny until somebody goes to the emergency room, right? Now we have to remember, well, was there a stop sign there yesterday? Have other cars seen a stop sign there? Has a stop sign in some way, you know, this, this convolutional concept of what that sign looks like in the rain and all of that. So there's a, an argument to be made that there'll always be this sort of breathe in, breathe out relationship between the edge and the middle, if you will. And that we're never going to get to the point where everything is a swarm and everything thinks on its own. And, you know, layer on top of that disruption, right? When the future changes significantly, you know, COVID, we all think of COVID as the great disruptor. That wasn't one thing that happened at one time in one place. It happened in different times in different parts of the world and different degrees. And all of those parts of the world started to interact and bump into each other and solve the problem one way and make the yeah. problem worse somewhere else. And you want to do things at the edge, right? It's not either or, it's both. And that's some, right. It's both. Isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's actually, now we talk about the core of my job, like, okay, so how do you react to that? You're right. Because like, it's not, everything's not at the edge. The explosion of data is happening at the edge. I think if you're like yourself, a chief data officer, I think then what you have to figure out is like, well, I have to figure out what pieces of that data have value, right? Like, what do I actually need to keep versus what is data that's necessary in the transaction, in the moment of the transaction, but is transient. And I think there are a lot of things we have to work on. You know, you've got to think about your data lineages. You've got to think about your taxonomies. You've got to think about your data architecture, your information architecture, really. How does that data turn into information? Yeah, exactly. And so I think all of that said, one of the most useful ways to think about it in this current era of data is as a data mesh or a data fabric. And that's kind of what we're thinking about too, is like, look, the devices might need to talk to each other. They might need to talk to the core. Various consumers of that data may pop up or spin down, spin up, spin down. We can't centralize that really. We actually have to democratize that because there's too much of it now for it to be known. What we can centralize and what I think the role of the chief data officer has to be in the future is like, hey, which pieces of that do I need to keep for future learning and understanding and value creation? And which pieces of that are necessary to be on the mesh in a transient way, but can eventually disappear? And that's really hard work because there's so much of the data. And I think your going in assumption has to be that, look, if you're producing data, it's up to you as the producer of the data to determine at what points it actually has value and not. And you publish your data as it has value. And if it doesn't, you discard it because there's just too much of it to have around forever. The old model used to be, just keep it all. Just keep it all and we'll figure out what to do with it later. We're very rapidly, if not already, into a world where that's just not practical. So I'm having a quantum experience right now. I simultaneously agree and disagree with you. So let me just challenge some of that epistemology. And I'm not sure how I feel about this, to be honest. If I, as the creator of the data, decide what has value and not, doesn't that disintermediate someone else who might be able to find value in that data? I'm not talking about creepy value right now. I'm talking about yeah. you know things that help in some way, right? This concept of value is subjective. And sometimes being able to draw value requires piecing it together from other people's garbage. I agree. So how do we realize what you just said when we all don't want the same thing and we don't know what we don't know until we realize we don't know it? So let me just say this is a 100% Will's opinion. 
I don't have any real answers to that question. Same here. What I would tell you, though, is I think my perception is based on what I perceive to be human nature. The data producers are always going to think their data is important, more important maybe than it really is. And so I think what happens is by allowing the data producers to control what data they put on the mesh, I think what you do is you widen the aperture as far as you want it widened. Because those data producers are going to default to, hey, my process is important, my application is important, my whatever is important. So I'm going to put my data on the mesh. And then the data consumers are going to be the ones that come in and actually create the value. Now, that said, I think that's where you have to have a role of either chief data officer or somebody who is in charge of driving the value of the data, because that person then needs to be the person that validates. It can't just be completely decentralized, democratized to the nth degree, there does have to be some level of centralization that says, no, I can validate that we're actually producing data or value from this data. And it's this, or it's that, but I'm going to be the person responsible for collecting it because let's be clear, the amount of data we're producing requires a lot of money to operate that infrastructure. It's not free. And so somebody has to be responsible for enumerating What's the value of that investment? <laughs> it's not nothing. It has to be something. I'm a scuba diver. And when you scuba dive, you have this tank of compressed air, which if you just turned it on, would blow your lungs up, right? So you have this thing called a regulator, which is pretty important. If it over-regulates, then you get no air and you suffocate. And if it under-regulates, then you are in very big trouble very fast. So the regulator is, is critical. In data, we have regulators all over the world. They don't all want the same thing. Some of them value privacy. Some of them value commerce and economic growth. Some of them are trying to model their regulation over somebody else's regulation and you know outregulate them. What role do they play in what you're talking about in this ecosystem and mesh of data? That's actually a really interesting question. One of the hats that I wear as the owner of customer primary data is also sort of the chief technical officer as it relates to privacy. And Dell takes privacy extremely seriously. The level of conversations I have all the way up to the very top levels, Michael, Jeff, the leadership team of the company are very much aligned to Dell wants to be the most trustworthy steward of your personal data. And I think regulations are driving that in large part. I think regulators, of course, have to have a role because people need to be protected. And that's the role of the government and what those regulators do. And our role as a good corporate citizen should be to respect those regulations and not just the regulations as they're stated, but regulations as they're meant, right? Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And so that's kind of formed the basis of our strategy. What we do in terms of looking at regulations around the world is we look at sort of what's coming down the pipe. What are the strictest regulations that are coming down the pipe? And then we want to engineer our entire infrastructure to be compliant with the strictest regulations. And in fact, we also have a process whereby we ask ourselves, is this right? You know, beyond what the regulations are telling us, like, is it right? You know, privacy is all well and good. And so is customization and personalization. There's a balance to be struck there. Like, what is the right thing to do for our customers? If we can take a piece of data about our customers and take 15 steps out of a process, and now that process that would have taken you 15 minutes takes you one minute, isn't that worth it? But that's a choice that every customer should be allowed to make. And so being able to give that choice and optionality to customers, it's, it's really complex and challenging. There's a very long-winded way of saying, hey, regulators are there to look out for the good of your customers, for all of our customers. 
you ought to pay attention. <laughs> you ought to pay attention and not just pay attention to what they're saying, but pay attention to what they mean. And be part of the dialogue to help them understand as well, which yeah. I know was implied in what you just said. If I could shift this now to the internal culture within Dell, you know, you've got a lot of transformation going on and Dell has to drive this digital transformation internally as well. So how does this play out within the organization, within the product teams, within the, I won't say warring factions, but the groups that want different things, right? How does this play out? That's actually really fascinating. We could probably write a book together on this topic. It's really interesting, the transformation we've gone through. So I've been at Dell since 2000. And to watch sort of the transformation from like a more industrial focused 90s kind of manufacturing company into a real digital future focused, you know, flexible tech giant, like that has been a fascinating transformation. One of the things, the learnings that we've had is clear ownership is important. And I would say it for data even more so, because data tends to be a thing that people don't think about. Clear ownership is important, especially on the business side, because you have to understand how do we create value with either software or data or whatever we're doing? How, how are we actually creating value for our customers? How are we creating value for our stakeholders, for our other stakeholders and our shareholders? And the answer to that question is almost always in a business process. And so understanding the business process that you're trying to change to create value and then what that mechanism of value creation is, is of key importance. And I'd say it is massively underserved with data. When I took over customer data for Dell, the first thing I figured out was, oh my gosh, if, if I don't know how I'm creating business value with this data, this is an incredibly expensive infrastructure to continue to maintain. And of course, there's the obvious answer. Oh, well, you need customer data in order to take orders. Okay, fine. I got it. Customer data is involved in every transaction, but that's a much lower bar than, hey, can I use this customer data in order to make sure that I only talk to them about things they're interested in? One of the key things that we did is we, we took control of our customer data in a way it hadn't been before in order to be able to say like, hey, this whole notion of a spam email, like nobody likes that. Nobody pays attention to that. Can we stop doing that, please? Can we have a targeted way to email customers that we have a strong indication are really actually interested in what we talk to them about. And the results of that is we send way less emails than we ever used to. And we have way better response rates because we're only talking to people who are interested in talking to us. And that's the point of all of this conversation. That's what regulators are trying to do, right? <laughs> regulators are trying to, to narrow down the annoyance in everybody's everyday life to the level of, hey, could we only talk to people who we know are interested? Yeah, yeah, we could. In fact, actually, it costs us less to do that and it has a better business payoff. And so it's this win, win, win. But in order to do that, what you have to have is you have to have really strong business leadership who understands how to produce value. You have to have really strong and I would say almost singular technical ownership to be able to produce that in a way that's productive. And then Probably the hardest thing for Dell has been to create a culture where failure is okay, right? You know, Dell has always been sort of a fail fast company, but that fail fast was usually like, actually, you really need to succeed fast. <laughs> and so, uh, but we really have made that, that transition into, hey, we're going to have small, flexible product teams that can work together in a multidisciplinary fashion, business, IT, everybody that needs to be involved, data science, everybody that needs to be involved, small team. We move fast, we launch small things very quickly, we test, and then we learn, and failure is okay. In fact, failure is rewarded and celebrated. 
because it tells us something we didn't know before. And now we can move forward with more information. There's two things that I like to say in that regard. One is it's it's fine to make mistakes as long as you're making new ones. Yeah. You know, fail fast doesn't mean make the same. That's mistake. exactly right. Yeah. If you make the same mistake over and over again. Yeah, uh, that doesn't count. And, you know, lessons learned are only lessons learned if you learn from them. Right. So that's celebrating of the thing that didn't work. What did we learn from this? It's a super important thing. I'm thinking about that scene in, in The Lion King where Rafiki hits young Simba over the head with the club because he's trying to say it's in the past. It doesn't matter. And he says, why did you do that? And Rafiki says, it's in the past. It doesn't matter. You know, of course it matters. You, know, yeah. you can learn from it. I actually like to call them lessons earned because you earned those, right? You had to pay for them. Yeah. You earned that lesson. Don't let it go away, right? Exactly. You must keep it. You worked hard for it. I may quote you on that, sir. There's four drivers that are often quoted in change leadership, people, process, technology, and mindset. And I love that you're really focusing on the mindset because, you know, not to underpin it too much, the people and their mindset, you know, having the right people. And that includes re-educating the people you already have, not just bringing on people. The processes and the technology are super important, but you're a technology company. You'll get that right. It's that mindset that will probably teach you a lesson quicker if you get it wrong. I love the way you're focused on what do we have to think? How do we move forward? How do we define moving forward? What do we have to believe? Such important questions that often get overlooked by leading with a data set or a methodology or a piece of technology. It matters, but it doesn't matter in isolation. Fair? Yeah, absolutely right. Actually, one of the things I talk about, one of the concepts we introduced as we were uh, developing our data strategy was it's actually people process technology, but in the middle of all that is actually data, right? Because what commonly gets overlooked is the fact that what connects the people, the process, and the technology? Well, it's the data, right? Like if I go into an interface and I, you know, click a task and mark it done and it's ready for the next person, well, what happens? a bit flips in a database, which triggers a communication of data from one process step to the next. And then another person picks that up in their queue and says, oh, okay, it's time for me to perform my task. Well, that data communication is actually what is driving all of that. The people, the process, and the technology are all subsisting on that data. It is the very fuel that powers those things. And so if you really want to power a transformation the first thing you should do is get a hold of your data and understand what the value drivers are in your data and then use that to inform how to move forward. Yeah, and I think implied in that is get a hold of your data and understand what the question is you're trying to ask. If you just leap into that data, you often find whatever crazy thing you thought was true. Yeah, fair enough. The point of that whole triangle is the fact that these things are all equal. They're co-equal. You really can't affect one without the others. You talked a little bit about the shift in how you communicate with your customers. How's data changing their experience from their perspective? Do you think your customers have higher expectations of Dell? Do they have changing views of the value of their data, the power of their data, or even the, the value of just you see them as more than just a collection of data, but as a collection of experiences over time. Absolutely. In fact, that is the core thesis driving my very job. And it was the reason why when in my career journey, I, I talked about why I was interested in going to marketing is because of that very thing. What we see is customers demand that we know them better and that we know them more than just their account, that we know who they are and we know what drives them. Customers are demanding from us that we know hey, based on whatever data we have right now, we know you're interested in Alienware, but your day job may be a purchasing agent for your company. And so we have to know that about you too. 
And customers are demanding that we make it easy for them to shift that context between, you know, Will Hudson as an Alienware gaming enthusiast at home at night and Will Hudson, you know, IT executive purchasing agent and or decision maker during the day. And so that drives this huge challenge where now all of a sudden we have to bridge that at the same time. And it's a funny dichotomy. At the same time, regulators and customers are asking for more choice and privacy. They're also demanding that we know more about them and we be able to make our processes more flexible. And so that really, honestly, to me, is all about communication and transparency. And that's maybe the biggest thing we're doing on privacy is hey, customers are absolutely willing to give us our data where we can show the value for that. And if the value is, as I kind of mentioned before, I can take a process that would take 15 steps and narrow it down to one, and I can take a 15-minute use of your time down to one minute, customers will give me their data all day, all night for that. But where I can't do that, where I can't sort of explain or be transparent about why I'm collecting their data, what you see is a growing desire amongst our customers to be able to make a choice to say, nope, I'm not going to give it to you because I don't see the value. And so the way we're headed is we are going to generate more and more better and better algorithms that will help make our customers' lives easier, that will help guide them to the right products and solutions that meet their needs. And we will become better and better at explaining to them hey, this is how we're using that data. And if you want to stop us from using that data, we're going to give you that choice and optionality. Dell's all about choice and optionality, and that's how we're going to approach privacy and customers. So the other phrase I hear a lot is, I'll lend you my data. I'm not going to give you my data. I'll let you serve me, and then I want you to destroy it. The problem with that is you can't then learn how to serve others like me. That's right. Because I had to give the data back. Do you think we get to a point where... There's so much control over what you can and can't do with the data that it's all self-serving and there's no greater good. Great question. Like, to be honest with you, I don't know that people are that motivated about their data. (laughs) You know, to be honest, like what I would say is I think if you can prove that you're taking their data and securing it so that it's like, you know, in a Fort Knox security, it's not going to be stolen and that they trust that you're using that data to create value for them and you're not going off and just selling their data to the highest bidder. You know, I think that then they just say, oh, okay, Dell's a company I trust. You can have my data and you can use it and you can learn with my data. The other part of that obviously is data doesn't get destroyed in use, right? Data is infinitely copyable. Yeah, data is not like oil. Can we please stop saying that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's not at all like oil, right? Like data data never goes away until you decide to delete it. You can copy it as many times as you want. And so, you know, inherently, what do you lose by sharing your data with a company that commits to not reselling it, that shows you the value of using it, that is committed to security and has a proven security track record? We actually don't lose anything. And so then why would you be trying to safeguard the value of your data in that respect? Like, no, you give your data to the company, to that company in that instance, because it benefits you as a customer. And do you ever need to take it back? Well, you should be able to if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. But do you need to? No, there's no reason to. It gets a little more complex as you get a little bigger. As an individual, it's easy to talk about this. Like, it's easy to talk about Will Hudson's data or maybe my family's data. You know, as long as I trust the company involved it's easy for me to say, sure, I give them my data. But if you zoomed out and you said like, well, if I was making a decision on behalf of Dell, what would that look like? And now all of a sudden it's like, whoa, hold on. There's a whole different level of value here, right? Now I'm giving you something of really significant value. What am I getting in return for that? Yeah. I guess to answer your question directly, I'm sure there will be a balance. 
there will be a balance that gets struck. I think people don't want to have to manage that, but they are because they've seen the negative effects of it. I think companies and chief data officers need to think very deeply about how to manage that. I think also it's probably fair to say that it's not being in one place at one time with regard to all of those questions. This is a, you know, be where you are on purpose in the context of what you're doing. If there's an emergency, if there's a huge opportunity, if your most important customer is on the brink of some, you know, critical decision point, there are times where the conversation may change because of the exigencies of the situation. It doesn't mean that you're a hypocrite. It means that you're staying in the moment and revisiting those decisions. I don't want to start getting into technologies, but there's, you know, differential privacy. There's all different ways to sort of give and take away rights to look at the data. We can share data. You know, I'm so tempted to start talking about blockchain and smart contracts. Let's not. But but the whole point is that there's lots of technologies out there that are trying to deal with this concept of trust and permission and understanding transparency of use. AI, you know, the practitioners of AI are not making things any easier because explainability is almost laughable at some point when you've used 10,000 algorithms, like, okay, I'll explain it, but I won't even understand the answer. So, you know, it's more about transparency. It's more about having trustworthy AI. We're going to need some new language. We don't have the right language to describe some of these problems yet. Is that fair? 100% right. That was extremely well stated. Like the truth of the matter is today I can explain really easily how I use your data, but as we develop more complicated algorithms, we deploy more sophisticated AIs, all of a sudden it becomes like asking you, Anthony, like, well, how did you recall that piece of data that you just told me? I don't know. I learned it somewhere. I don't remember where. (laughs) And, you know, you're comfortable with the fact that right now you're not thinking about how your shoes feel, but now you are because I said that, right? You're comfortable with the fact that your brain filters things out and sort of directs your far away. This is a very duality kind of conversation, like thinking about yourself and how you think. There's a reason why eyewitness testimony isn't, you know, 100% because the way we remember things isn't always the way they happened. We put context. Well, algorithms do that as well. And so we have to be super careful about which ones we use and why we use them. Since you brought gaming into it, I want to ask you a, a, a fun question. Sometimes I do a lightning round. I'm not going to do that because we don't have time, but there's two uh, future scenarios. One is Star Trek, you know, where all the knowledge of the sentient kind is known and you can ask a question of the computer and the computer will be able to tell you about something that is going to help you. And then there's the Jetsons where, you know, all day long, he's just fighting with his technology and the robot maid gives him sass and nothing quite works right. Do you think our future is more like the Jetsons or more like Star Trek? Well, let me hedge that. I am planning and trying to build a future like Star Trek, but I'm expecting a future like the Jetsons. Yeah. (laughs) The reality is the world is messy. It's all shades of gray. The thing that makes us human and the noble thing about humanity is the fact that we're always trying to be better. We're always trying to achieve the next plane. So there will always be something that we can do to improve. And that's what gives us our nobility. Achieving that improvement is less important than the fact that we're trying our best to get there. You know, what a beautiful piece of advice. I usually end by saying, what piece of advice would you give our listeners? I can't think of a better one than that, but I'll open the door for you. Is there something you've learned that you think we can give our listeners as a piece of advice other than maybe the embrace the messy, you know, it's not a perfect world. Is there something else you would like to share in the context of the power of data? I think that the biggest learning I've had in the last, say, five to seven years of my career is that we're at a point with humanity where we're so specialized 
no one can do it on their own anymore. And when I think about the transformation I've been through over my career, I started my career in an age when vice presidents had big functional silos and they could control everything within that silo. And as long as they delivered the thing in their silo the best possible way, the company would be successful. We're not in that world anymore. And that world is never coming back. We're too specialized. The only way to be successful from here forward is if we work together. We honestly work together and collaborate as a team. This notion that I can individually be successful and my success individually is something that can be rewarded without context of everything around me is gone. It's just not the way the world works anymore. I have to not only be successful, I have to make sure that my peers are successful, that my teammates are successful. I have to bring everybody with me to success. And we all have to be playing that role together. And if you really want to do a digital transformation, if you really want to do a data transformation, what I have learned is that's the only way it's going to happen is if you do your best to bring everybody around you with you and they do their best to bring everybody around them with them as well. As a team is the only way we're going to make it. So my biggest piece of advice is, hey, we've all heard about being a good team player since we were in elementary school, but now it's time to walk the walk. You cannot be an individual player and be successful anymore. So well put, so well put, and so true. I hope everyone is hitting that replay button right now and listening to that 10 or 12 times. That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I'm, I'm having a moment here. There are things that we have to do in our careers and things we get to do. This is certainly something I got to do. I'm so glad that we had an opportunity to talk to you. Me too. Absolutely a fascinating conversation. Can't thank you enough for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. This has been a great and fun conversation. So thank you for being the facilitator. It was just a ton of fun talking to you. Thank you. Find out more about how Dun & Bradstreet can help your business be better. Contact us at marketinguk at dnb.com. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.